0: It's a privilege to speak this morning, and uh, for those of you that are visiting, we're doing two series in our church. In the morning, we are doing 1 Corinthians. We're looking at Paul's encouragement to the Corinthian church, a church very much in terms of its culture and its context, like a modern city anywhere in the world, and we feel like Corinthians has a lot to say to us as modern believers. And in the evening, we're working through the book of Acts. And so, here this morning, I've got the privilege of preaching out of 1 Corinthians 6, if you want to follow in your Bibles from verse 7 to 11. And uh, the title of my message this morning is, you have been washed, you have been sanctified, you have been justified. What a beautiful, beautiful story that we have as Christians, that God has completely transformed us and changed us, and that our past is gone, our present is being transformed, and we have a sure hope for our future because of all that Jesus has done through his death and his resurrection. And so the context of this is that Paul has been encouraging the church in Corinth, uh, a multicultural church in a pagan community with many people from all over the world who've come to seek their fortune there. It's a place of great prosperity, it's a place of of great um, idolatry, there are many temples where different gods are worshipped Greek and Roman gods. It's, a t- uh, it's also a place of great sexual immor- immorality, which is celebrated as a lifestyle. And he's now in this context, he planted this church, and he is now trying to encourage them after he's been her- got feedback from some of the people that have traveled there that the church is not doing too well. And so in the first couple of chapters, uh, three chapters, he encourages the church around unity and says, don't prefer one particular preacher or leader over another. We are all doing God's work. We are all pointing people to Christ. And it doesn't matter whether it's Paul or Apollos or Cephas, any of the guys, they're all a great blessing to you. Enjoy all of them and let them speak into your life. That's the first encouragement. The second problem that he starts to talk about is around sexual immorality. And I had a look at this two weeks ago. Where we looked at chapter 5, we are now in chapter 6, and obviously in our context, in our culture, this is a hot topic right now, and so I want to encourage you to look at what I said a couple of weeks ago. It's the foundation of what I'm going to say today, and we're going to look at these verses here this morning, try and understand how we can apply these to our own 21st century context, all right? And here we go. So verse uh, uh, 7 to 11. The very fact that you have lawsuits amongst you means that you've been completely defeated already. Why not be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers and sisters. And uh, two weeks ago, Ed beautifully, eloquently unpacked those uh, verses for us to help us to see that uh, Paul's encouragement to them is that on trivial matters of the law, they shouldn't be suing each other in the church. Um, They should be resolving it within the church. And then, very profoundly, he pointed us to justice and law as well, Ed. In his message, to say that when it's necessary, we should appeal to criminal courts, but largely for trivial matters in the church, let's work it out as brothers and sisters. All right? And that's, uh, please catch up on Ed's message. I re- really recommend it to you. And then Paul uh, carries on, and this is where I want to focus this morning. Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral or idolatrous or adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So here again is Paul's list of things that he says these behaviors are just not compatible with God's kingdom. And then he says, and this is what I want to really focus on this morning, and that is what some of you were. Yes, that's what you were. You were swindlers. You were idolaters. You were, you were uh, slanderers, drunkards. You were greedy. You, are, you were adulterers. You had sex with men, men having sex with men. But that is what you were. You are now no longer that. You are washed. You are sanctified. You are justified. You are a completely new creation in Christ. Hallelujah. Come on. This is the gospel. And I think the pressures in our culture to stop us preaching this message, which is so transformative in every area of our lives. And uh, as I, I said, this is this is something I want to really try and unpack this morning. And so, Paul is picking up here again in chapter uh, 6, what he started in chapter 5, in verse 19, where he said, to um, the church, I don't want you to associate with sexually immoral people. And remember, we had a look at that. And Paul's criticism of the church is actually, you are worried about what is happening outside of the church. And he said, says to them, that's not your concern, what is happening outside of the church. You are to love everyone outside of the church with the love of Christ, whether they are Muslim, Jewish, gay, straight, whoever they are. You are to love them with the love of Christ. And inside of the church, you are to make sure that in your life, there's no immorality, there's no problems in your own sexuality in in the church, and you are in a disciplined way to, to, to live that out. And I said to you, part of the problem of our culture is that people in the church are far too concerned with people outside of the church. And they're not looking inside of the church and making sure the church has got its act together in all of these areas. And they are, our culture is littered with stories of pastors and church leaders that fall regularly in areas of sexuality or areas of mismanagement and, uh, of finances or sexual misconduct in the church, littered. And yet, people are so concerned with those outside of the church. Paul says, don't judge. It's up to God to judge. You live a life that is salt and light to your, your everybody, so that people will see you are a transformed person and say, why are you a transformed person? And that's how the gospel comes. Amen. Amen. And this is what, so I say all of this to say that um, God is not capricious. God, God is not, he doesn't suddenly change his mind because he's gone in a bad mood. He doesn't act in an unreasonable and an unaccountable, changeable way. And so it's not like God is a set of rules written down in a book or like uh, Moses did on a tablet of stone. And he now is trying to make everybody fit into this in some arbitrary kind of way. He's not trying to cookie cutter our lives and push us into this mold. of of what we should be, and unfortunately, that's how many people think Christian teaching on morality works, that God is trying to fit every single person into a certain mold that He has made, and when His church speaks about His way, they are being unfair, they're being hateful, they're being uh, mean in teaching these things and saying this is how we should behave in God's church. And you see, that's not the way that the Bible uh, approaches morality. Rather, the New Testament in particular teaches that God has shown us and revealed to us in Jesus, the Messiah, the Christos, the Christ, the perfect human being. Jesus was the only person that was fully human and complete as every human being was intended to be. Jesus was fully perfect, fully human. And this, when, we, when we look at Jesus and we gaze on His beauty, He transforms us and helps us to become fully human in the way that God wants us to be fully human. And He has things that He wants us to flourish in. He wants our lives to flourish as human beings as we gaze on Jesus and who He is. We become complete, perfect as human beings. And so, in that context, Paul says there are certain things that just don't fit into that kingdom of Jesus. And here are some of them. Don't be a slanderer. Don't be a swindler. Don't be sexually immoral. Why? Because you were washed. Because you were justified. Because you were cleansed. And your life is transformed. And now, in the light of what God has done for you, live out your life in a way That makes you more like Jesus by the power of the Spirit. This is how the New Testament teaches living and how we should live as human beings to become fully human. And that's why Paul says in verse 10, if you persist in behaving like that in all those multiple ways, you're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. And he's saying ultimately on that final day, we're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. But also in this life right now, we're not going to inherit the fullness of God's kingdom. Uh, if you are a slanderer and a swindler, you're not going to know God's peace and you're not going to know God's kindness and justice in your life. If you are sexually immoral, it's likely that you're not going to have good relationships in your life. Your, your relationships are going to be broken. Paul's saying, I don't want that for you. No, why? Because you've been washed and transformed. You've been, you know, the, the, the blood of Christ has changed you and saved you. And so uh, I also want to say, Um, this though. These things have always been contentious in the church, and when you teach about them, they are contentious every time you mention these things. And every generation has things that it's wrongly tolerated, or some things that it's wrongly emphasized above other things. And certainly when we are made aware of that, we certainly do need in every way to put those things right. And it's also Need to say up front as I talk about this morning that um, when we debate these subjects and talk about them, we can all react quickly and crossly. Especially when something that we've always valued or assumed to be correct is challenged and uh, said to be wrong, we can get cross. We can get our uh, emotions can run run high. But, but what Paul is saying here is that we are all capable of being deceived on issues that we think we have revelation about. We can fool ourselves into believing that everything is okay and everything is well because everyone else is saying everything is okay and everything else is well. But Paul says here, he says, don't be deceived. And the theme of the Scripture over and over is do not deceive yourself. There are things that we do not see perfectly that we do not see from God's perspective. And he wants us to help to see from God's perspective as we love all people as we hold this intention, as we genuinely love everyone in the world and at the same time hold to the Scripture. And so I found sometimes in my life, uh, when you get in the car, for example, and you're going in a certain uh, route. Now, Helen and I got married, married before um, sat naps were even invented. We are that old, right? And so we'd go on holiday to Europe, and Helen loves to read the map, and so she would have it on her knees, and she'll be guiding the driving. And I remember many fights that we had, my boys can testify, where sometimes the map was upside down and we weren't going in the right direction and everything was in reverse and we had to resolve that. But when you know a route well, or think, you think you know a route well, you can presume that you can get there quickly. And so I found this now particularly with sat-navs. We've even had uh, in our life now where Helen will argue with the sat-nav because of what the map says. Only to find, only to find that the sat-nav does know something that the map doesn't know. That there is a road work somewhere that it's trying to warn you about, and you ignore it because you know the route well, and you think, no, I know how I'm going to get there, and I'm going to get there quickly, and suddenly you end up in the wrong place or on the wrong side of the road because you weren't paying attention to the sat-nav. Now, I know. I've got this all sussed. I know, man. I know how to get there. I know what we need to do. It's fine. And you see, that is what Paul is warning us about in the Scripture. It's easy to place, end up in the wrong place, because you don't see perfectly as God does. He is the author of every good thing. He's the lover of our souls. He has our future in His hands. He knows what is good for us, and yet we don't always trust Him because we think we know better. And so because we know better, we can end up in the wrong place in a way that He doesn't want us to be living our lives. We can deceive deceive ourselves, and don't be deceived, he says, and I want to put it to you this morning that sincerity and conviction about ideas are not enough. History is littered with examples of people that were sincere and full of conviction about the rightness of their ideas, and yet they proved to be wrong and sincerely wrong in the ideas. Now, I want to put it to you this morning, even Uh, You know, we talked about sexual uh, freedom a couple of weeks ago that has now become seen in our culture as the ultimate human right is to be free sexually and to express yourself in however you choose sexually. That is lifted up as the ultimate human right right now in our culture. The very idea of human rights is a Christian idea. Did you know that? The very idea that people protest about all sorts of things today is a profoundly Christian idea. In the Greek and Roman times, there was no thought of everyone being equal until Paul gets up in Galatians and he says these beautiful words. There is no slave. There is no free. There is no male. There is no female. But all are one in Christ. Do you know what a depth charge that was into the culture It was an absolute explosion that people didn't realize what Paul was saying because people were not treated equally in Roman culture. And we we, we think of slavery today and we think, oh, why didn't Christians protest more about slavery? Because we see slavery through um, 21st century eyes looking back on 18th and 19th century slavery and transatlantic slavery, which was absolutely brutal and in every way wrong, but you know, you could end up as a slave in the Roman culture quite by accident, and nothing to do with the color of your skin or where you came from. Let me give you an example. Julius Caesar, the great leader who conquered Gaul, remember? Asterix and Obelix, conquered Gaul. What did he do? He killed a million people. He murdered, genocide, one million Gauls. He killed the other one million Gauls were enslaved. They were happily doing their vineyards and getting off their lives, and suddenly they were slaves to Rome. You could end up a slave quite by accident in the ancient world. And so when Paul writes and he says, treat your slaves well, treat them as members of your household, treat them as your brothers, boom, boom, Another depth charge right into the fabric of society that you don't always see immediately the change that it brings, and it's a ripple that goes and a ripple that goes and it transforms everything. It is radical, it is absolutely incredible that what the Bible speaks about that we now take for granted in our 21st century looking back and say that is so obvious. It was not obvious then, it was incredibly radical. What about Paul saying, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Oh, that's so obvious. Of course we love our wives as Christ loved the church. You know what his context was? A Roman citizen, a male Roman citizen, had the right to sexually take anyone in his household apart from his own family, apart from his flesh and blood, if he wanted to have sex with a scullery maid, if he wanted to have sex with the young boy serving the food, he had a right to do that. There was no legal penalty against him at all. This is the context of Rome. And Paul says into that context, now the depth charge, poof, into the culture. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. You love her like that. She is not your property. She, you, you love her as Christ loves you. And we look back now, and we say, oh, what an obvious thing to say. It was absolutely, incredibly radical in every way. Are you still with me? And so here, ideas can be wrong. And even ideas that are based on Christian conviction can be wrong. So what am I talking about? I'm talking about someone like Karl Marx, who uh, was a Jewish man. And so he believed, like a good Jewish man, he believed what Paul said, that all people should be equal. And so Marx said, and Engels and other people said, all society needs to be equal. We shouldn't have people exploiting one another. The poor are actually quite important. And so he came up with a whole socialist system that was taken on by the Russians, was taken on by the Chinese, was taken on by Pol Pot in uh, Cambodia. And what did they do? They destroyed millions of people and slaughtered millions of people as they tried to conform them into this way of thinking that everyone must be equal. Without the root of the gospel, it brings devastation wherever it goes. Sorry, I'm loud again. I'm very, very passionate about this. And then someone like Hitler, who took absolutely anti Christian ideas, he opposed Christianity in this way. What does Christianity say? Especially the weak are especially important to God. The weak are especially important to God. And those that are strong need to take care of the weak. All are equal. The Nazis said, no, not all equal. Particularly if you're a Jewish person, you're not equal. And they murdered millions of Jews and millions of other people who are weak. So people that had any kind of physical defect, people that were blind, people that were, they were slaughtered, they were killed. Anti-Christian, directly anti-Christian. And you know, these things are not new, so apologies to the Greeks. We talk about the Spartans, the great hero of the 300 Spartans in that amazing battle where they fought off those, the, the, uh, the foreign armies. Do you know the Spartans sowed the seeds of genocide for those that were weak? The Spartans believed this that they needed to be strong, that they were great warriors. So they brought all the children to the elders. Any child that showed any physical defect or was not likely to be a great warrior was thrown down the ravine and killed. They practiced infanticide. They killed those that looked like they were weak because they wanted to be strong. When Paul writes and says, love those, especially the weak ones in the church, love them. He, boom, a depth charge into the culture. Transforms everything. Don't let anyone tell you that Christianity has not made a radical difference to the world. The only the reason the West is like the West is, is because of Christian teaching. And right now, because we are experiencing uh, the, the removing of the Christian foundation from our culture, that's why people are fighting about rights so much, because there's no root to hold it together. And at the end of the day, then your right becomes the most important thing. You take the root away, all you fight about are the rights. Everyone's fighting about their rights. The root is gone. We call to preach the good news. You were like this, but you are washed. You are sanctified. You are glorified. You are justified, says Paul. Your whole future is different because of what Jesus has done for you. This is such good news. And so Paul is saying none of us are immune from making mistakes. And we, we might not even make mistakes on that scale as some of those examples that I give to you, but we can all of us equally fail to discover full, genuine, human flourishing as Jesus has intended for us. We can make mistakes, and He wants all of us to flourish as human beings made in His image. And just as in in Paul's day, like in Corinth, which was a pagan city, one of the great interfaces of culture that is a big clash in our western secular culture is around sexual morality and this is one of the areas that paul says we need to be really careful you see when you live in a city like london where people move often and live fast lives and uh, come and go to many places it's quite easy to live a sexually lax and irresponsible way because you can largely afford um, avoid the consequences of your decisions of your actions and uh you know, more and more, like with medicine, you can avoid the consequences of your actions. So, you know, if you sleep with someone and they get pregnant, you just have an abortion. Just take the morning off to pull. It doesn't really matter. Quite, our culture encourages us to behave like this. But I want to say to you this morning, as kindly as I can, there are always consequences to actions, especially when it comes to sex. God has designed us as human beings that our bodies, our minds, our imaginations, our emotions all interact with each other seamlessly. That's why it really doesn't matter who you sleep with. God is deeply concerned what you do with your body. And we're going to look at that later because Paul deals with the whole issue of prostitution. Our men in the church were going to prostitutes. And he says, how can you do that? You've been washed. You've been transformed. You know, it does matter if you're into porn. It really does. Why? Because you've been washed, you've been cleansed, you've been sanctified, you're a new creation. That's not going to help you to flourish as a human being in the way that Jesus wants you to flourish. And so, in other words, all that we are and what we do as sexual beings affects every other aspect of our lives. Sex is never casual. It's far more important than that if we, if we minimize sex, if we trivialize it, we minimize and trivialize God's The God-given humanness that we have and God intends for us. Uh, And if we allow wrong thinking to come into our minds, it runs through the rest of our lives and our character. And the reverse is also true. If there are underlying unresolved issues in your character, they distort and damage your sexual desire and your sexual practice. It is all integrated. It's not just you can't separate your mind and your body and your emotions. We are complete beings. And God intended us to be that. Always. And so, as I said a, a couple of weeks ago, many people have so steeped themselves in this anything goes culture sexually, which does culminate each year in something like the Pride Month, uh, where and those that speak in terms of any kind of alternative to that are even the smallest suggestion on any kind of restriction on our sexual behavior is seen as hateful, s- surprising, offensive, and anyone who says anything... Uh, the challenge is that is canceled. This is our culture right now. And so I want to say to you as a pastor of over 30 years, and I can tell you if you speak to any other pastor or any other counselor, they will speak about the absolute human devastation that results from sexual permissiveness. Permissive sexual behavior is absolutely devastating, especially when it results in the breaking of marriages, and shattering of families. And unfortunately, over the course of 30 years, I have dealt with many, many people whose lives have been shattered because of pornography, prostitution, sexual immorality in the church. Come on. We have to live like Jesus wants us to live. We can love people with all of our hearts, whoever they are, and still make Jesus the center of our very beings so that we live a pure life by the power of the Spirit. And so in chapter 5, we looked at Paul's use of the word pornea, and I spoke to you about that, which is translated as sexual immorality, which applies to anything outside of marriage where we are sexually active. God says, that's not going to help you flourish, and I spoke about how we can Understand that and help people in our culture today. And in today, to these verses today, Paul again uses "ponia," where he says, um, oh dear, help me Jesus. He says, um, neither the sexually immoral, immoral or drunks or idolatrous or men who have sex with men. And here when he says men who have sex with men, he uses two other words which have been hotly debated and contested in the last 50 years. Um, and they are... They clearly, But all scholars agree right now that these clearly do apply to male homosexual behavior. And um, the two words are this, malakoi, which refers to a passive participant in a homosexual relationship. Now, in Greek times, in Roman times, uh, pederastic relationships were quite common. What, what does that mean? It means a, a young effeminate man was in a relationship with an older, um, an older man. So that's a pederastic relationship, and so it was quite common. I've, I've done some reading around people like Caligula and, and Nero, and they would get men to dress up as women and then have sex with them. Uh, it's just part of their kind of debauched lifestyle. That's that's how they rolled. That's what they did, and uh, that was very common in Paul's day. Pederastic relationships. So the sense of a passive person and then an active kind of. Um, dominant person. That's, that's one of the words he used there, malakoi. But the other, the other word that he uses is asenokotai, which is a kind of, um, it's a compound word speaking of male intercourse. And it's, it's quite crude, uh, the way that Paul uses it here. Uh, but it's trying to describe the thing of an aggressive partner in a homosexual relationship. And Paul p- puts all of these things alongside, do you notice... Again, I said last, last time, it's not that it's more sinful than all the other things. He's just saying the, the big interface in his culture where Jesus' kingdom and the Greek and Roman kingdom most kind of challenged each other was on the area of, in the area of sexuality. And I've said, I've said that in terms of, of how Paul viewed, viewed women and slaves. That's where the big crunch came in the culture. And so look at what he says again. He puts it all alongside each other. The sexually immoral idolatrous, that's obvious what an idolatry is, an idol worshiper, an adulterer, someone who's married, who's having an adulterous affair. And then he, he defines it even more in terms of homosexual sexual behavior and thieves and those who are greedy and drunkards. And he says all of these behaviors are just not helping you to become more and more like Jesus. Throw them off. They, they are not part of God's planned for your flourishing. He wants you to be a perfect human being. Now, this is a great challenge in our culture where we are told that actually all those things are okay. And we have to lovingly, kindly speak to people and point them to Jesus. Of course, the great challenge is that people in the church are saying this is all okay as well. And I said to you last time, the great pain that I have is that We're not being salt and light anymore. There's no distinction in some churches between the world and the church. It's just exactly the same. Paul says, No, we are called to be distinct. We are called to be Jesus followers. We are salt. We are light. By definition, there's something about our lives that is pointing people to Jesus, and we are different. One of the conversations I've had with my sons over many years when they were teenagers, but dad, we don't want to be different, man. We want to fit in in school. We don't want people to think we're weird. But by definition, you are a Christian. You are, Jesus is your Lord. This is not your kingdom. This is the world's kingdom. He has His kingdom, and His kingdom is coming in you, and His kingdom in you changes everything. And you see the world differently. You see your past differently, your present, your future. You are completely transformed. You do not fit in. This is not our home. This is not my permanent place. My permanent place is in the new heavens and the new earth when Jesus comes back and he judges all things and he glorifies my body. And I live with him in a glorified new creation. And so I want to try to encourage you, let's not lose hope, let's not use courage, particularly when our culture pushes back on us so hard at this time. And Paul is admitting in, in some of these things, he's saying that there were some people that do, did want to do that stuff. And we've seen that so much in that it's only in the last hundred years that we've seen the proliferation, the rise of words like homosexual, gay as identifying labels, and particularly in the last 10 years, this rapid proliferation of all these labels, identities that you can affirm yourself in, lesbian, queer, bisexual, non-binary, non-binary pansexual, et cetera, etc., cetera, et cetera. All of these kind of labels. I want to say to you, the Christian life is about you being a completely new person and your identity is fundamentally changed, not by a pronoun, but by what Jesus has done for you. And so what we use in the Christian faith is language like this. I was blind, but now I see. I was dead, but now I am alive. The old is gone and the new is come. We use that language all the time. I was a slave to sin. That was my identity. I was a slave. I couldn't help myself. But right now, I am a son of the living God. He's adopted me. I was a kingdom in the kingdom of darkness. My new identity is in the kingdom of light. This is the gospel. That is what you were, says Paul. But you're washed, you are justified. You are sanctified. Now live like someone who is. The great joy of the gospel. And so I want to encourage you, friends sexual freedom is not the ultimate human right. Jesus Christ was the perfect human. Perfect human. Never had sex. Never died because he didn't. Never lived. Uh, Unfulfilled for life because he didn't. That's the other great lie of our culture, is that you have to be sexually active to be fully human. I say, done. I say, garbage. History is full of people that did profound things with their lives that were celibate because God called them to be celibate, and they lived fully human lives in the most powerful way that transformed communities. Come on. Why are we so fascinated as a culture with sex? And Paul is saying here it's not about sexual error being worse than any other kind of wrongdoing. He's just saying it is because it's so central to us as human beings that we mustn't take it too lightly either. It really doesn't matter how you behave sexually because it matters very much to God. And he's saying that when we have these behaviors in all of those that he lists there, they distort our, our, our identity as human beings and they hinder us from fully flourishing as human beings as God intended us to be. Now, ultimately, we're going to see the fully perfected sense of that in the new kingdom that is still to come. But Paul is saying now right here in your life, you're not going to inherit that, that kingdom fully if you persist in those behaviors now on earth. And again, I'm not talking this, this arbitrary set of rules that God is pushing us into. It's not that at all. He wants people that gaze on the beauty of Jesus, that look to Him, who start to reflect His image through their lives and that any behavior that distorts that image. He wants, it to leave us, he wants us to leave it behind so we can come more and more like his son. That is what some of you were. These are some of the most beautiful words in the whole of the New Testament. This is what you were. But God. But God. You were like that. But God. You couldn't wash yourselves. You couldn't save yourself. But God washed you. God took your sin as far as the east is from the west. No longer does He see it. He sees the perfection of Christ when He looks at you. I've done some stupid things in my life, and you know, when God looks at me, He doesn't see any of those anymore. He sees the perfection of Jesus on me. His imputed righteousness and on you. He sees that. Couldn't set myself apart for the work of God. That's what sanctification means, that we are set apart for, to be used by God. I couldn't sanctify myself, but Jesus sanctified me once for all. Couldn't save myself, but Jesus did. What about this beautiful verse in uh, Romans? I'm sort of all over the place in my notes. Oh, Hebrews 10. And that's by his will we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus once and for all. We've been justified. Once off, don't need to worry about it anymore. Romans 5.19. Well, just as through the disobedience of one man, many were made sinners, so through the obedience of one man, the many will be made righteous. Jesus has justified us once and for all. The Spirit spoke to these people, cleansed them, gave them assurance of salvation, and made them into completely new people. This is what some of you were, but God washed, sanctified, justified. And so, I'll land on this, and then we're going to break bread together. See, this is how the New Testament encourages us to live as godly people. And this is the great challenge. This is the great challenge, particularly as we try and be salt and light in our culture. The Bible never tells you just what you must do. Don't do that. Do this. Don't do that. That's how many people think Christians uh, view morality and ethics. Uh, it's just a list of rules. Tick the rules off and you're fine. The Bible never teaches morality like that. The New Testament always starts and tells us of the great thing that Jesus has done for us. The great thing that the cross has bought for us. The great... Uh, future that the death and resurrection of Jesus makes possible for us. It always starts there, and that's why we love to worship, because we want to, we want to lift up our eyes and speak about what, sing about what Jesus has done for us, the amazing thing that Jesus has done and bought for us, and we want to focus on that. And then, says Paul, he says, now, once you understand and start to gaze on the beauty of what Jesus has done for you, live differently. Work out your salvation in the light of what Jesus has done what Jesus has bought, of who Jesus is. That's why he says, don't cheat or steal or lie to each other. That's why he says, don't swindle. Don't take money and steal money from people. Don't drink too much. Don't be a drunkard. Don't give in to greed. Don't give in to slander. Make sure that your sexual behavior is reflecting something of, of, of who Jesus is. Don't be sexually immoral in any way. Why? Because of what Jesus has done for you. And so we put to death every behavior that distorts the image of Jesus in our lives, whatever that behavior is, so we can become more and more like him. Work out your salvation that Jesus has poured for you in a life of loving fellowship with brothers and sisters in the church and as salt and light to everyone outside of the church. Love them as Christ has loved you and love each other as Christ has loved you. Amen.